save the world. Can't leave anything to chance. But can we change things if we do it differently? What's happened's happened. Which is an expression of faith in the mechanics of the world. It's not an excuse to do nothing. Fate? Call it what you want. What do you call it? Reality. Now let me go. Welcome to Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm your other co-host, Jake Harris. And tonight we are discussing where we got our name from. Uh, we are talking all about Tenet. Our namesake film. We finally made it. We've also we run out it. of source material because the Nolan Variations only covers after this movie. <laughs> yes. What are we going to do? <laughs> he mentions Oppenheimer a little bit but not as a movie, but as a person that he was influenced by. So yeah, well, we get a little bit of information on that, but then yeah, into the road for the book yeah, and the Oppenheimer stuff and the Nolan variations was when, in the context of discussing tenants. So we're actually going to be able to stretch that beyond the limits of the published work, but that'll be for next time. <laughs> <laughs> in the meantime, before we, Enter the Twilight World. What and this is, and that's not a reference to Robert Pattinson. It's a reference to the line from Tenet. Okay, um, <laughs> what, what are some Nolan news and adjacent things this week? Um, I hope he did that on purpose when he wrote that after he cast Pattinson. But I don't know. I don't think anyone's asked that. Um, if we ever get the, to talk to Christopher Nolan, that will be the thing yeah. we ask him. I, I, yeah, because yeah. I thought about this right. No, no. <laughs> Um, but no, speaking of, uh, Oppenheimer for a bit, uh, this news item was, uh, from a while back in June, but, uh, I flagged it and forgot to mention it, but it's relevant here tonight and it'll be more relevant for when we talk about Oppenheimer. But Kai Bird, who is one of the co-authors of American Prometheus, which is the book that we're reading in prep for this. And it's the book that Nolan took, uh, all of the information and inspiration from for Oppenheimer. He has seen the movie and he has given an opinion and he said that he is stunned and emotionally recovering from having seen the movie. Uh, and he said, I think it's going to be a stunning artistic achievement and I have hopes it will actually stimulate a national, even global conversation about the issues that Oppenheimer was desperate to speak out about, about how to live in the atomic age, how to live with the bomb and about McCarthyism what it means to be a patriot, what is the role for a scientist in a society drenched with technology and science to speak out about public issues. And I just got to the part in the book where he, Oppenheimer, is lobbying Congress and trying to get everyone to listen to him about the the power that they have wrought after the bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so, yeah, that's a pretty big, big praise from the co-author of the source material. Massive, um, yeah. And... Yeah, that's the only uh, opinion that he has given so far yet. Uh, so it pairs nicely with Nolan's uh, talk about how people were just leaving screenings completely horrified. So, yeah, I don't know what we're going to walk into when we finally see this thing, but everyone's hyping it up a lot. Yeah, I, I can't wait again to be totally devastated and uh, bestowed with a brand new refreshed sense of existential dread. And I kind of been thinking about it. I wonder if I'll get the same kind of feeling I had the first time I saw Dr. Strangelove because the ending of that. With yeah. All the, yeah. 
the shots of the the nuclear tests, but in the movie presented as real, obviously. Really just, oh man, that one was a quite a punch for me, but seeing, <laughs> seeing Oppenheimer, mm-hmm. oh man, if I can ima- only imagine if it just intensifies that and compacts it and throws it right into me. So yeah. Well, yeah every out. time, yeah. Every time I, I read a quote from Groves in the book about, you know, the importance of the bomb or just, you know, keeping to press on no matter what the misgivings about it were, I was just like, man, this is George C. Scott from <laughs> strange love incarnate basically. So yeah. Uh, it'll be, it'll be interesting. Yeah. Sure. And I'm, a bit ahead of you in the book, I believe, based on where you said you were. And yeah, all the stuff post World War Two. And this will be a lot more talk for next week, but all the decisions and everything just making me sick to my stomach. So, yeah, it sounds like, yeah, it's it, so far all the all the buzz seems like he got it spot on and we'll we'll see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The only other thing that I have in terms of a news item is I think since last time we recorded, I saw a social media post. I believe it was from Letterboxd. I don't know where they pulled it, but uh, it was Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie had bought some tickets to see Oppenheimer. So that was pretty fun. And I'm eagerly awaiting Universal's post to show Nolan and Killian Murphy with their Barbie tickets. Please, we have to have that for the sake of balance in the universe. I need it. I need to see it. <laughs> <laughs> my my favorite post about that was I saw someone tweeted like, you know, Killian's like calling Christopher Nolan be like, Lord, please don't, don't make me do this. Don't make me pose with some tickets in front of the Barbie <laughs> thing, which I think is funny. Cause like, you know, Nolan has the reputation of like the, the ultra serious filmmaker and everything. And like, as we're going to discuss tonight, like, big old goofball dudes rock type movie yeah and he's just as you know he wants people to go to the movies he wants people to to experience the theatrical experience but i don't think that he i think it would be really funny just having them look deadly serious in front of the barbie standy thing in <laughs> a movie theater but i don't think that's gonna happen but the um there was a, a some fighting with uh supposedly tom cruise was pissed that mission impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is not going to be in IMAX as long as they thought because they had to bump it for Oppenheimer screenings. And so he was trying to lobby to get more time slots for that. Uh, but then apparently backed off. And then as an act of good faith, all the the Greta Gerwig photo with uh, Margot Robbie was in response to him, to Tom Cruise standing with Christopher McQuarrie in front of Oppenheimer, Barbie, <laughs> and Mission Impossible, all with their, like fake movie tickets to you know show that they're going <laughs> to the movie so just they're all the, the putting the stake of the whole industry in like four movies this summer isn't great but everyone's excited for him so i'm i'm happy for that yeah another type of solidarity i suppose but it's, yeah it's all in support of getting people to movie theaters which i fully support as well indeed indeed but speaking of watching movies what have we been watching besides the usual nolan fair um, so I actually tonight just got out of a movie uh, called Past Lives. Have you seen the trailer or anything for this? I've, I've haven't seen the trailer, but I've been hearing so much and so many good things about it. And I'm going to oh. guess you have some more good things to tell me. Oh my god! <laughs> so it's br- very brief plot summary. A woman uh, when she's 12 years old, living in Seoul, her family immigrates from Seoul to Canada, 
and she has this huge crush on this kid in her class and they have like a brief little like 12 year old date day to kind of just like hang out and like but they've always been around each other in class and their friends and everything and so but when the day comes for them to move she's just like all right bye and then they don't see each other and then cut to 12 years later she's a playwright living in new york and she finds the guy on facebook and starts talking with him and then they start up this skype relationship where they're both not sure like is this romantic is this kind of not like am i just in this because i miss who i was when i was a kid kind of thing and they keep going back and forth with that and then they kind of fall out and then cut to another 12 years later she's married to an american and uh he is just living in korea um still going to school still trying to um he finished up his you know like mandatory military service and is studying to be a um, an engineer and then he ends up coming to new york to meet her to finally see her after all these years to kind of just see what would happen and it's a very it's a very short movie but it packs so much into its running time and it's like taylor and i both left it just like thinking about like we had a really good discussion on the car at home about just like you know you're not the same person that you were 12 years ago but you are the same person but your wants and your desires and your goals are different and how do you rectify who you were back then with who you are now and like do you even like who you were back then versus now like it's all like a lot of very existential philosophical questions wrapped up into what might be a rom-com to some extent like there's the the marketing for it is marketing it as like a romance rom-com type thing but very good it's essentially like three people mostly in the whole movie and treats all of them with empathy and respect and everything it's it's such a great thought-provoking adult movie really which we don't really get a lot of these days right but yeah it's up there with uh are you there god it's me margaret right now for my favorite of the year and if you have a chance to go see it in theaters i would highly recommend that but it's probably going to come to streaming at some point it's an a24 movie so they might release it on their website but yeah past lives is is fantastic (laughs) based on your description i'm envisioning is like some kind of mashup of like when harry met sally with everything everywhere all at once and all this yes yeah yeah Yeah. and like i was actually talking to taylor about that too like everything everywhere all at once and spider verse and all the like the the multiverse is so hot right now right but um scorching those kind of look at the fantastical elements of everything and what could happen in this one i think takes a very grounded look at examining well okay that could have happened but reality is happening right now and how do i square that with what i want or what i thought i wanted and just very it wrestles with those and doesn't really give you good answers kind of leaves it open-ended for you so very very good very thought-provoking cool well i'll keep an eye out for it on streaming since i'm not sure if i'll be able to get to the theater for that one but sounds like a good date night movie I can get Haley to watch with me <laughs> very much. Yeah. But uh, me, the thing I've watched in the past week was singing in the rain, revisited it, showed it to my kids for the first time. And I think both Haley and I hadn't seen it in years, maybe since the last decade or and a half or so. 
I think it's been, yeah, it's been that long. It's been a long time, but it was wonderful to revisit it and see one of my kids just, you know, dancing her little dance with all the numbers (laughs) and my son laughing along. Oh, they loved it. And (laughs) my son really enjoyed the make them laugh sequence, uh, among others. And it was, it was a good time. And just to really see after such a long time for me that it's an amazing musical, of course everybody knows that but to focus on some of the technical qualities of it just how mm-hmm. they frame mm-hmm. things and the depth of field in some of the shots is just absolutely incredible the one of the sequences almost like literally i was just looking at it and how beautiful it was and i almost like out of nowhere got a little emotional for some reason it was my te- my eyes were about to well up with some tears and i was like whoa <laughs> didn't expect that it just looks so gorgeous so Brilliant, brilliant movie. Gl- very glad to see it again. So maybe uh, if anyone's needing their blast from the past, uh, go watch Singing in the Rain. It's on Max, and you can see it there if uh, nice. if you can. Nice. That's not what we're really here to talk about today. No, no, no. What we are really here to talk about tonight is Tenet, which is uh, Christopher Nolan's basically his James Bond film uh, for better or for worse. I think both of us are going to come out on the the better side, but we'll talk about that. Yeah. Some brief stats here and a synopsis about it came out in 2020 and I will be talking a lot more about the film landscape of that year. Nothing at all else happened in that year. Nothing Nothing of note. Nothing Nothing significant. Not at all. No, no, No. certainly, certainly, especially not anything that would impact the entire world. Like the events in this movie. (laughs) Um, uh, obviously directed and written by Christopher Nolan, uh, starring John David Washington, Robert Pattinson, Elizabeth Debicki, uh, shot in color in 65 millimeter and a grand total of 150 minutes long. And the IMDB synopsis is very, very bare bones. (laughs) Uh, it says armed with only one word tenant. And fighting for the survival of the entire world, a protagonist journeys through a twilight world of international espionage on a mission that will unfold in something beyond real time. Can't see it, but I'm doing the hand gesture right now. <laughs> it's one of my tenets. I love how simple it is, but like when you say it with the, the oh, we'll, we'll get more into yeah. it. <laughs> but how did you watch it this time? And had you seen this movie before, Marshall? Yes, I've seen it one time before. This is my second viewing this time around and the first time I watched it was a little under two years ago when I finally was able to uh, stream it a year after it came out in theaters and I haven't really stopped thinking about since the first time I saw it so this time around I was wondering what am I going to think of it this time will I like it more will I like it less will some of the things that I remembered most be the same or you know what am I going to notice again and uh it was a it was a really good time uh i i remember thinking up the first time watching it like i enjoyed it but man it was so dense like is it does that really matter like am i gonna just get lost in it all again and the second time around armed with the knowledge of i suppose letting it wash over me where where i did that and man what a good time i just I think you said it. Uh, it's a, it's a in your letterbox review. It's a vibes movie, and the vibes, if not necessarily immaculate, are pretty darn good. So, streamed it again this time around. Uh, 
started watching on my Blu-ray copy and turned out that that disc is has some rot in it. So I had to switch halfway through to streaming. So no. So with both Dunkirk and Tenet these last two times, man, I've encountered some adversity, but I made it through. <laughs> and what about you, Jake? Uh, this also is the second time that I saw it since it came out. But my first time viewing experience was actually pretty cool. I got to see it in theaters when it came out in 2020, but that required us to, and I saw it for my birthday, uh, that required us to rent out a Cinemark theater up in like Plano. Uh, so we had to drive that far to get there because that was one of the only places where you could do this. The cradle of the company. Yeah. And I think we had like 10 people, maybe 10, 11 people in the entire theater. Uh, like my parents came in town to visit and we did that and saw the movie. They came out for the weekend and they came to the movie too. And like, I, I was looking at the photo that we took afterwards because we're all like six feet apart from each other <laughs> with masks on in the lobby. We're the only ones there. I think we got like a popcorn concession stand guy to take the photo for us. And it just, it, it's such a weird reminder of that time where like no one knew what the hell was going to happen tomorrow. You know, like everything was kind of up in the air, but we were just like, yeah, let's go see the movie. But uh, that time that we saw it, I do remember I liked it, but it was very confused about it and wanted to watch it again. But I also didn't want to like run out the whole theater again to just go see it by myself. Yeah. Um, so I waited till it came out on uh, DVD and Blu-ray to watch it and uh, just watch the like bonus features on it once that came out. And then this time, or on the first time I also in the theater, the sound mix was just, it's like if there was ever a complaint about Nolan movies being too loud and you couldn't understand what was happening, it would definitely apply to this movie because that just added to the confusion for stuff. And afterwards, my parents were like, what happened for the last 15 minutes? I could, and I was like, do you mean like you want an explanation? They're like, no, I just literally could not understand what they were saying. And I was like, oh, yeah, me neither. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, so, and then this time I was watching the, the digital copy that I got with the Blu-ray and I watched it on my laptop with noise canceling headphones on. And that helped a lot because I could just focus on what the people were saying and it was just right there. So, but I did that and yeah, kind of like you, I was just like, I don't know what my experience is going to be a second time. Just maybe I'll just try and do as they say in the movie and just don't think about it. Just feel it. And that, I mean, that worked. I ended up not doing a complete 180, like in the movie, basically, because I already kind of liked it a little bit. But I think this is the one that has grown on me the most out of his entire filmography from the first time watch to a second watch. And also one of the ones that I'm most excited to like, oh, okay, I want to go watch that again to see if I can catch anything that I missed and just to watch it to have fun because this is such a fun movie. Yeah. Yeah, there's it's absolutely ridiculous and wild, and there's so many absurd, crazy things that happen in it. But I I love it. I I enjoyed it. I I want to watch it again too, and and I will be in a couple of weeks uh, in the theater uh, at my one of my local Alamo draft yeah. houses. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm I'm I don't have high hopes for the sound mix because both times I've seen it, I've had headphones on piped right into my ears and. The experiment I did this time, normally I've made sure I completed the script before watching any of the the films for the podcast. 
And this time I started it, but then I just watched the movie to see what would happen. And to get it out of the way, the sound mix is just, it's, it's kind of like a lot more of the that one incident I mentioned in The Dark Knight Rises when I was watching. Just there's like one scene where the dialogue was really low in an otherwise totally quiet scene. And it didn't make sense why that happened. This time it happens all the time. Even in some quiet scenes, it just felt like the dialogue was just turned down. So this was the one time where the sound mix just... You know, with the uh, with the Vox Populi, I, I totally agree. It's, there's just something funky going on with it, and it's really hard to hear some of the dialogue, and in some cases, stuff you need to know. And also, not even when it's trying to be layered with other sounds, because sometimes there aren't any other sounds, and it still kind of just drops out. I don't understand. <sighs> yeah, so I, I don't know. I, the good thing is, I still know what happens anyway, so good for me. And yeah. <laughs> I can just soak in the the cinematic experience. And I, I, I'm very much excited about that. And I guess we sort of, you know, sort of dove in already. I don't think we were planning on doing much of a more expansive plot summary. Um, yeah, there's no really yeah. a, a good way to explain it. Uh, the, the future's yeah. trying to attack <laughs> the past and our protagonist. Literally, that's the only way we had to describe him is trying to save the world by preventing the future's contact with the present Andre Sator from not blowing up the world, but sending an algorithm that can invert time into the future so that the future can invert the entropy of the entire world and destroy the past. So if that doesn't sound complicated and ridiculous enough, I don't think we need to get into any more of the plot summary. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty it's much very it. much one of the, yeah, I, I saw a thing where they like he consulted Kip Thorne for some of the, the, the same guy that did the interstellar stuff for some of the, the entropy things and all that. And then he was like, yeah, I mean, like theoretically, if this were to happen, this is probably how this would end up. And then they put a disclaimer when they premiered it. They were like, none of this is like, we're not saying any of this is real. Like just have a good it's time. It's extremely theoretical reversing yeah, entropy. Yeah. 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 What more um, do you want from theory? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of hate that that line is played for like a laugh beat in the trailer, <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah, the, the Oppenheimer trailer. Let's be clear. Yeah, the Oppenheimer trailer. trailer anyway. <laughs> yeah, I've just I I see it every time I go to the movie theater now, and it's just in my mind a lot. Anyway, real quick, if you don't mind, I want to put on the the film lecture hat for a minute and talk about the weird place that this has in film history now. By all means, I think it's a good place to start. Yeah. So um, let's go back in time a little bit and Step into that uh, yeah. And first off, you just got to realize the third Friday in July. It's a big, big date for Christopher Nolan. Those are the wide release American dates for Dark Knight Inception, Dark Knight Rises, and Dunkirk uh, have all been released on the third Friday in July. Um, And that's kind of like his lucky charm for opening movies. And so that was why he picked a release date of July 17th, 2020 to release Tenet. And so how did that work out? Well, <laughs> so, so in 2019, he starts making the movie. He, you know, is very secretive as he is. He's keeping it under wraps and it's shooting and everything. 
this movie was reportedly his most expensive original film at about $205 million. Uh, some other estimates are saying that it costs like 190 to 225 million, which means that once you factor in marketing and everything else, this thing's going to need to make at least 450 million worldwide to recoup its box office and start turning a profit. So it's a big, big movie and everyone is, you know, he might be messing with time again. He's going to go back to the memento stuff. It's a new Christopher Nolan movie. It's going to be great. And then end of 2019 hits. There's a cluster of pneumonia cases in the Hubei province of Wuhan. And as we all know, that is about to be, that will become the COVID-19 virus. Uh, and then the first American case starts hitting in January. And then the first American COVID related deaths happen in February. And then March is when everything starts to shut down, including movie theaters. And so that's when it gets kind of gets tricky for old Nolan. And so movie theaters are starting to shut down and they're also starting to scale back. However many people they're going to allow inside for screenings or start social distance. And then this is when we get the first instance of a, company saying oh we're going to put everything up on streaming so nbc universal is saying that they're going to put all of its like most of its upcoming films on demand uh not quite streaming but like pay to to watch on demand so that they can get past the theater chain distribution snag and just start making money as they as the pandemic rages on and so in the middle of all of this nolan is like reading the tea leaves and he's like okay my movie's probably going to get delayed, but I also want to make it known that this is a thing that you should see in theaters, and I want to highlight the theatrical experience. So he writes an op-ed in the Washington Post, and I'll link to this in the show notes, but the big quote that he has here is he says, movie theaters are a vital part of American social life, and they will need our help. When this crisis passes, the need for collective human engagement, the need to live and love and laugh and cry together will be more powerful than ever. The combination of that pent up demand and the promise of new movies could boost local economies and contribute billions to our national economy. We don't just owe it to the, to the 150,000 workers of this great American industry to include them and those we help. We owe it to ourselves. We need what movies can offer us. So he's a big, always has been a big proponent of theatrical experience. And in that quote, also the workers of those movie theater chains and the people that make movies and the crew members on all of these things in Hollywood. And so at that point, AMC and there's a bunch of other theater chains are holding on to, okay, we're definitely going to release this movie in July. We're going to hold to the tenant release date. Um, I remember hearing those news reports too. That I was, yeah. <laughs> like we're going to do it. In yeah. July. Yeah. And at least in Texas in May of that year, some theaters got the green light to reopen starting on May 1st. Uh, but only two theater chains did that. It was uh, Santicos and Evo. Um, so it wasn't looking good on that front. Uh, and even uh, like trailers for Tenet are still coming out around this time, but it doesn't have a release date. It just says coming to theaters soon. And that's all it says. And then the release date eventually gets pushed further and further and further until the actual release date is September 3rd of 2020. And then it gets shuffled off to Blu-ray and DVD three months later in December. And so there's a lot of 
a lot of stuff going on there where the whole industry was kind of staking its survival on the fact that if we hold out and we open tenant the you know if you build it they will come mentality and then that's going to make a bunch of money and then that can maybe keep us afloat until the regulations say that we can open up theaters again and maybe put in the stake of an entire industry on a trippy movie about time travel uh (laughs) was not the greatest idea even if it is big name brand like christopher nolan yeah um but then this also had some other effects and I'm almost done here with this this little side trail here. Um, I just think that like in whenever this like the COVID pandemic is mentioned in history classes, if you're a film history student, like this movie is going to be brought up as a case study of of what happened as a result of all of this in 2020. The Warner Brothers execs, uh, who Warner's made Tenet, and it's been the company that Nolan has been partnered with for most of his career at this point. Uh, as a result of all of that, in 2021, they announced that they are going to put everything that they are releasing in theaters on HBO Max on the same day as it's in theaters. So you wanted to go see Dune, but you, if you have COVID or if you're scared of getting COVID, you can just watch it at home. Same with Matrix Resurrections, uh, everything else. And this caused a lot of problems with the stable of directors and producers that Warner's employed because supposedly they did not notify any of the directors or stars about this. They just unilaterally made this decision. That tracks. And Nolan was pissed. And the quote that is attributed to him, but or it's rumored that he said, but isn't actually like not a huge source to actually attribute it. Uh, said that he went to bed thinking that he was working for the greatest movie studio alive and then woke up the next morning and realized that he was actually with the worst streaming service he could find. So once he he realized that, oh, all my stuff, you know, if it doesn't get better, it's just going to be dumped to streaming. I don't want to be a part of this. And so he takes his talents to Universal, which is now where Oppenheimer is being produced. And so he has been on the outs for that. But now, after all that has happened, Warner Brothers wants him back. Two of the new heads of Warner Brothers film have been trying to mend some fences with him. Uh, The company gave him a seven-figure royalty check within the last year, tied to Tenet because they were saying, like, you know, this is a bonus for everything that happened. Supposedly, he's done a lot of post-production work on Oppenheimer on the Warner Brothers lot. And the two, the new two new heads of the film division are saying, like, we really hope that we can get him back over here and we can get him back on our side. We're really trying to do more original films and highlight filmmakers and everything. So um, don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) I don't know what he's going to do next after all of this or or where he's going to go to do it. But basically the way that, theater chains reacted to everyone holding the line on the original release date only for it to get delayed. And then the way Warner's reacted to all of that for its 2021 slate pretty much sealed Nolan's fate with this and all of that. And shockingly, not a lot of people really saw this movie in theaters, but those who did really liked it, but it found most of its audience on uh, streaming once it finally hit that uh, at the end of the year in 2020. 
but yeah, it's just such a, it was like the movie that people were talking about in 2020 and it was before the pandemic hit. And then afterwards that was kind of the, the word on everyone's mouth about what was going to happen to the industry. And, uh, box office stuff hasn't really, I mean, it was kind of declining leading up to it too, but hasn't really bounced back to anything pre pandemic levels yet. And then we're also seeing right now with, you know, the people aren't really going to see superhero movies anymore in the last couple of months, except for Spider-Verse. So, yeah, we'll see where it goes. Like the industry is rapidly changing. And this was the movie that kind of was in the midst of it as it was happening. So we're in an interesting historical moment is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a. it's just interesting that this movie of all movies is the one that did that because yeah, you can get us, you can get us back on track onto stuff that you would like to talk about this movie. Cause we can't really explain the plot succinctly. Yeah. Um, Everyone's forgotten what I said by now. Yeah. So it's, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, to dive in to actually talking about this movie, number one, I, I'll probably get to this in the course of the conversation, but this thing absolutely deserves to be seen in theaters i mean it's self-evident given who we're talking about but man there's just i I know the phrase pure cinema gets thrown around a lot but the thing you watch this movie for is the visuals um Mm -hmm. yeah the bullets the explosion implosion like all of that stuff yeah yeah i mean it's it's just with nothing else it's worth it for just how this thing looks and the sequences alone uh, that's not like the first movie to run anything backward, but the combination of having stuff running backward with forward running stuff and just the director's vision and the scope of it and the scale of all like the scale of that imagery really make it stand out to me. And I feel like you can if you know, this is surely and definitely not plenty of people's cup of tea and that's fine, but I don't think you can fault the ambition in this. Again, I think Nolan's just swinging for the fences and trying to make the best movie ever. Again, is what he does. And it's there's just some really captivating visuals in this and a great execution of a personal vision or an experiment, if you want to call it that. So, um, yeah, just the, the big visual that kept getting shared a lot too that year was it's John David Washington in the oxygen mask in a time where everyone's got to wear a mask. And just yes. This, that sticks with your own personal supply of air. Mm -hmm. And in terms of what Nolan said about it to Tom Schoen, he did call it the absolute most cinematic film I have ever been able to put together. It can only exist because of the camera, because in the chapter about tenant, he talks quite a bit about, he was doing a film panel in India with Tacita Dean. And she was talking about the camera is the only device we have that can show time visually and so that got him thinking and uh he also told tom Schoen, you know one of the things i was most excited about with tenet was i found something that i wanted to do with this that you can't articulate on a page you actually have to see it you have to experience it to properly understand it it speaks to the essence of cinema and he also Mm -hmm. said about the script the more people burrowed into the script the less they understood it and that is absolutely 100% the truth. Yes. <laughs> trying to read some of this stuff and imagine, even having seen the movie and trying to imagine it, 
Like, I just, uh, no, it's just melting my brain. I need to just watch it and then it'll make a little more sense. So just the, the thing I think of when I think of Tenet is the visual nature of it and having things run backward and having characters inverted, doing things backward, interacting with forwards, moving characters, just even seeing it just... Mm-hmm trying to understand what i'm seeing it's so hard sometimes you just, uh, what are you doing? or like how they how they committed it to film like where the yes. the birds are flying backwards and the sound is going backwards but they're moving forward and like how they put both of that together on just crazy yeah and, and then the and then thinking of the fact that they did mo- as much of this as possible as they could in camera practical effects yeah and having people actually try to act backwards and no one tells Tom Schoen that he was surprised at how <laughs> he, he learned that some of the stunt people in the doubles were really good at acting backwards. So just, just how they got it on the camera. And then when you think about the behind the scenes of it, it's just absolutely man. <laughs> just so impressive. And yeah, that maybe plays a little bit into my experience watching it when I just try to think about that. But that's the thing I, cannot stop thinking about with it and and trying to use that to make sense of the plot it just it keeps my mind busy and overheats it and also just gives it some good eye candy for lack of a better phrase but man the visuals the visuals god (laughs) that's where i gotta start with it that and yeah you mentioned the this thing can't exist without a movie camera right and we talked about how this is kind of harkening back to memento with the the way that it's structured and the way that it kind of teaches you to watch it as you go along with the don't think about it just feel it but then also with the way that the structure is mirrored about halfway through yeah um, and, and of course the very beginning sequence is like maybe the the prologue for this movie for uh, with memento that opening credit sequence mm-hmm. it's yes the entire scene is running backward culminating with yeah guy pierce firing the gun but the the it going back into it yeah but i also thought a lot about uh inception here with like every cut here and everything you understand what's going on because of just one i think if and i think that i thought this way just because i've been watching so much of his filmography and i've been reading so much about it but it almost relies on your knowledge of how Nolan makes movies in order to make sense of this movie, because every cut and every jump for stuff is propulsive and always moving forward. And like, once you stop to actually think about like, okay, well, how did he, you know, after he takes the cyanide pill and they break his teeth and everything. And then the next cut, he wakes up. How did he get there? Who picked him up? It doesn't matter. That's just what the story has to do. And then the next time when he, um, when he's inverted and he's in the car and the car blows up. And then the next cut is him waking up and Robert Pattinson is over him, you know, being like, oh, well, you, you took a you know, like nasty fall basically or something. Mm-hmm. But like the cut, like you know how to interpret that in your brain just from watching movies and like it mentions like the Eisenstein montage stuff in the Tom Schoen book, yeah. but it definitely relies on a viewer's understanding of how movies and like the film grammar works, not just for overall movies, but his Nolan's own grammar. 
like every scene, every exposition thing here is the scene in Inception where Cobb is like talking to Ariadne being like, think about how you got here in this dream. You can't think about it. You, we just cut here and we're here and just accept it and move on. And that's pretty much this entire movie for 150 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> it's like we talked about in last episode, the pure distilled Nolan, I think was the phrase I turned out. And there are so many direct callbacks to his other movies. I made a list. We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> and <laughs> there's extreme self-awareness, I think. I mean, and he talked about it with Tom Schoen. He, he claims he's not riffing on his past work. Just instead, quote, trying to be true to the impulses that have defined me, which I think is a, a good way of putting it. You can listen to this, you can buy that or not, whatever. And then he also said, can you be sincere and self-conscious? I'm not sure you can. The sincerity to me is in not taking them out, them being the things he's done in the past. Yeah, I think that's the third time I've quoted this on this podcast. So I won't read through the whole thing again. And he also mentioned showing the script to Jonah. And he says, I asked him, is this me repeating myself? He was like, no, it's more the apotheosis of a set of ideas. I said, great, that's how I feel about it. And I think that's kind of right. I, mean, I don't think it's necessarily repeating himself. Yeah, yeah, it's, I would agree. It's just taking what he's done before. It's just, these are things he's done. And he's like, well, we'll put this in here. Wouldn't that be cool? And just, you know, kind of using things again that have worked, making it in service to this, again, this totally crazy wild ride that he's putting on film here. Yeah, and it's definitely like the way we talked about with uh, Dunkirk last time about how he was basically just trying to make the barest type of war movie ever, just like strip it down to its bones, minimal dialogue, see what you can do there. This basically just riffs on a Bond film and strips it all the way down. Like, I can't tell you the plot points of uh what was the let no time to die or i i can't tell you like the intricacies the in and outs of casino royale or die another day or something like that but i can tell you the mood and the tone of all of those bond movies and what it made me feel and the the overall vibe of it and i never am questioning what is going to happen next in that movie because like the intentions of the characters are are there and I think that's exactly what's going on here, too, where he's stripping the the genre down to, okay, we have, like, he doesn't even name the main character. It's the protagonist because, you know, like, it's James Bond. Bond is, who is he? He's a spy. That's all you need to know. You yeah. know, like, like, he gets it down to, you don't need to know this guy's name. He, he exists to be a spy and to prevent World War Three, And then here we go. And you just know that he has to go somewhere to get a meeting, to get the thing, to get the MacGuffin, to stop the end of the, like, that's all every action movie for the last 30 years. But he's taking it and just taking the most important parts of it and then expanding on it. Yeah. And I noted that too. It's, it's a spy movie, but all Nolan's done, he's just taken all the conventions and he's kind of wrinkled it with the, the time stuff. It's it's meant to be dripping with all these tropes and cliches and all the beats because the beats are there. It's the story is something we know. And he 
says it in uh, to Tom Schoen as well, uh, and that we quoted last episode. He wanted to use the familiarity of the conventions to help the audience get to this other place. And he said the weight of the genre was so heavy. We didn't need to reference anything. We just needed to get on with it and do our version of it. And that is totally evident from the drop. And it never lets up with what you just talked about. You know, they drop him off in this inside this turbine at the start of the movie uh, to start getting ready to go on his mission, switching out the cars, walking into this office complex to where he, he meets the, the scientist who tells him about the inverted ammunition and everything. We're dropped right in there. It feels familiar because it's a spy movie. And the movie itself knows it, too. Um, Barbara is the character's name. It tells him with a high-vis vest and a clipboard, you can get almost anywhere. Almost. So it's, you know, that and so many other lines. And yeah, our, our quippy protagonist, very Bond-like. Um, Bond always has something to say for everything. <laughs> and There's so many great lines. Yeah. Here where yeah. <laughs> the, the hot sauce thing. And then yeah. he like he beats the dude up with a cheese grater. Like what a what a great <laughs> fight scene, and the the whole scene with Michael Caine, and then just the it's almost like a Doctor No to Bond. Like don't you want to know how you want to die, Mister Bond? Like type thing where he's like, how would you like to die? And he says, old. Yeah. Says, well, you're in the wrong profession then. <laughs> like, just very quick, quick witted stuff, and it's not ever taking itself too seriously. I feel like definitely that's a knock against. Nolan is that a lot of his stuff takes itself too seriously. And this one is having a gleeful time with not doing that. And even like inverting what you think a bond movie is in the first place, like in this one, his version of James Bond is black and he is more motivated by what we later learn is his friendship with Neil and his relationship with cat than he is by any sense of like duty to country or, like, yes, he's trying to prevent a nuclear holocaust and World War Three and reverse entropy and all that stuff. But he makes it a point to show his motivations are for humans first, um, which is something that you don't really see a lot in some of the Bond movies. Yeah. But yeah, definitely. I would like to see this guy and uh, North by Northwest and uh, Cary Grant for that movie in a in a room together. That'd be <laughs> yeah. <pretty> funny. <laughs> which I also know that was pretty cool because it sort of tenant watching this sort of kind of closes that loop that we started last episode with north by northwest we talked about was maybe the considered a, the first unofficial bond film and was influential on when that mm-hmm. franchise got up and running and this one is just a pastiche or a if you want to call it a partial inversion of the whole franchise where you get so much of what's come down in the 50 plus years since into this movie just based on uh, no one said he didn't watch a Bond movie for the longest time he's ever done leading up to working on this. Just he was just about his memory of it. And I love the point you made about the motivations for the protagonist that, yeah, it's not your typical like one country versus another or even one country versus a supervillain. It's a quote unquote good org, depending on how you feel about their methods versus a bad org. It's the past versus the present. It's something that twists it. And another thing I noted that the movie does with the genre conventions, it it uses them to kind of play fair with the audience, like we talked about. Uh, you know, Neil knows the protagonist's mm-hmm. drink order. Mm-hmm. He's apparently very well informed, yeah, so he's a spy. He knows I love everything. That bit. Yeah, yeah. But no, it's a clue to the temporal pincer of it all. And you know, and for the rest of the movie, Neil's just completely evasive about 
you know, oh, who recruited you? Who's like really in charge? Just, I don't know. Don't worry about it. Like whose policy? It's our policy. See? Yeah. So, <laughs> and even in Down to the Villain, like the most like, um, <laughs> like genre villain you could possibly ask, like all the way down to the dialogue for state over the over the top accent like yeah yeah yeah. um like he he says to to cat if i can't have you no one can like we really went there but the film's just winking at you the whole time with stuff like this so yeah like it's all there so we've got like the spy pastiche and then i guess over to some some more of the nolan things since that's like all the all the notes i have are kind of enmeshed with this (laughs) um yeah Number one, you called it again. I'm pulling just from your letterbox review because I'm, I don't know. I'm just having fun throwing your words at you in in a good way. You, you called this it's bonkers in the best way, and I feel like that's a really good way to describe it. Some of the the, the yeah the very Nolan things here, in terms of themes and and tropes and stuff he's used before. You know, you've got the bombs in the concert hall at the very start and the countdown, like it times right there right away and then for the rest of the mm-hmm. movie you know like the flow of time is literally weaponized you cannot get more christopher nolan than that yeah, yeah. um we got michael kane here and his character's name is instead sir michael crosby i mean <laughs> come on <laughs> you touched on it with bringing up inception right away it's constantly recontextualizing everything we know about this world we've been dropped into and the plot of it which is what we talked about with inception is what it does like so much exposition right up to the end, but you need it to know what's going on. You've got timelines converging and in this case, splitting and reconverging. And honestly, the movie as a whole is kind of the culmination of the don't understand it, feel it era that we, I think we talked about uh, during our interstellar talk. Uh, mm-hmm. And as well as the, I brought it up at the time, like an increased or supercharged focus on time. So yeah, those are like the general things I noted. And, uh, I'm I'm ready to do my my list of callbacks to individual films because I was really excited about that. <laughs> if, if you're ready, yeah, let's do that. All right, all right. I'm gonna start off with following. We've got an unnamed protagonist. There we go. Start <laughs> starting off. Um, this it's the OG for making time with the mob boss's girl. Don't do it. <laughs> Neil gives me really strong Cobb vibes from following, in oh, the way no, he's no. initiating the protagonist into everything and telling him a lot of stuff and. Just the suave, easygoing, debonair bearing. The the plane explosion bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, don't be so dramatic. Be, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Memento. We've got uh, some instant cuts for memory when Kat's telling her story, for one. Well, mm-hmm. it's going back yeah. into the gun, obviously. And these are just things I noticed. Just, these are off the top of my head. I didn't go. You know, I tried to just keep it, keep it real, I guess. Um, insomnia. Martin Donovan is back. Hap lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so happy to see that Um, there's a meeting on a ferry where the protagonist meets Priya on a ferry. Mm -hmm. Yep. yep. Uh, Batman Begins. The the main thing I pulled out of that was during the opera sequence at the beginning where the protagonist team are blending in with all the other SWATs, just like Bruce does in his League of Shadows initiation. So he, you know, he hides among all the other ninjas to defeat Ra's al Ghul or sorry, to defeat Ducard when they're trying to figure out where he is uh, the prestige, we have a parent reunited with the child at the end. And also the, uh, the no one cares about the man in the box. I earlier tied this to the, you know, the no one cares about the bomb that didn't go offline 
at the very end. Mm-hmm. And, and that was kind of in the context of a meta commentary on filmmaking and storytelling. And the Dark Knight also has something about that, too, you know, with no one knowing about the choice that Batman makes to save everything or to to make it possible for the Joker to not win. And also with the Dark Knight, there's the truck chase until then you've got the truck chase, the Joker trying to get dent. And also Bond's not blowing everything up at the ferry scene. And moving on to Inception, the rail yard and trains right at the beginning. Suicide as a way to freedom in that same sequence. Altered physics, of course. The exposition, as we mentioned, right to the end. There's a vault within a vault at the Freeport. So everything's just being so layered. Dark Knight Rises, you got lots and lots of concrete. Tom Schoen de- definitely talks about all the, all the concrete and beton root bonanza is what he calls it to rival even the Dark Knight Rises. The threat of nuclear bombs blowing everything up. Interstellar time, <laughs> you know, seeing seeing someone or something in an event and not realizing that it's you or someone that, you know, the first time around and kind of the closed loop of it all uh, with Dunkirk um, and Oppenheimer. We I think we're going to talk about how the this movie being a bridge between those. So you got battle scenes from a war in Dunkirk, just like we've got some here in Tenet. And then with Oppenheimer, the if you want to call them call ahead, calls ahead, you know, bomb talk with plutonium and explosions again and you know, inventing the means of our own destruction. But now that we're there with that, what were some of the other things maybe you have noticed in connection with Oppenheimer leading up to that and anything else from Dunkirk? Yeah, I think it's very very interesting to see this as a bridge between the two like literally it's the the movie that is in between dunkirk and oppenheimer but i think the themes that are here are also present in both of the other movies and it sounds like oppenheimer was on his mind when he was making this movie and the everything that i've read about why he wanted to make American Prometheus into a movie in the first place was because someone just gave him the book and he was like, Oh, this has got to be made into a movie. I think I can do this. It was Robert Pattinson. Um, and I think it was a book of speeches Oppenheimer made post-war. Yeah. I, I didn't double the, check because I thought it was the American Prometheus as well, but yeah. Uh, he gave him, yeah, he gave him a copy of the speeches as a rap present, but I think someone else gave him the actual book, but yeah, so I think it was all kind of happening around the same time. So he definitely had a lot of the same ideas on the brain. But um, there's even a, a line about Oppenheimer intended here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> where he was, where she's like, "Are you of you know this person that created this weapon is basically their generation's Oppenheimer, but way in the future, uh, and was also racked with guilt about what they had done." So there's a lot here in this movie about like what we owe each other in this world as far as you know, like preventing war, preventing violence among people and groups of people. And then also, but how knowledge to prevent that violence should be shared. There's so much here about, and Neil is intentionally being withholding because he doesn't want to tip the protagonist off that the protagonist is actually the person that invented tenant and re- recruited Neil to the whole thing because the whole movie is a temporal pincer movement yeah. that he orchestrated way in the future. But there's still a lot of talk about like, if you split the information, it lives on, you don't concentrate information all in one spot because that's how you die. 
And I just got past the part in American Prometheus where there's so many conversations and so many meetings about even like in the creation of the bomb that they're like, Hey, like maybe we should tell the Russians what we're doing, even though that's going to tip us off to, you know, how, what our, our plans are and what we're thinking about with using this weapon, because then in the long run, at least like if everyone knows about this, we can all know how to prevent it. And then that would also, we could end war that way instead of mutually assured destruction. And we all know how that turned out. Yeah. It did not. <laughs> that is not the route that we took. But there was a lot of scientific discussion about just, you know, because like in the scientific community, like to, I mean, bring it back to COVID, like everyone was sharing like, okay, how did you figure out how to get this part for the vaccine? Like everyone was working together. And they were definitely wanting to do that in the 40s with the bomb, like trying to figure out what roadblocks people came into or how people may, you know, there is an immediate effort to figure out how to reverse the effects of it and to stop it, to defuse the bomb afterwards too. So yeah. all of that stuff, but just more, you know, shared knowledge is, is more powerful than concentrated knowledge. But so there's a lot of that going on here, but I also think he's, he's had some of those ideas rattling around since Dunkirk, just with, I mean, obviously world war two and a sense of duty to people. But you can, it's interesting to kind of just see him evolve like different pockets of fascination with topics, I guess, throughout the course of this filmography and how it all intersects. Physics, most of all. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's, some, yeah. there's some really, really densely heavy physics references in this. But, but yeah, the, the, what she said about knowledge sharing, I thought was great because that's been on my mind so much going through the, the latter half of American Prometheus just so much. And we'll talk about it more next time, but um, yeah. Yeah. Just if, if people have been more open, what wouldn't have guaranteed anything, but who knows, maybe things could have been different, but also the fact of sharing knowledge and then in tenet, Nolan inverting that concept and, for the tenant organization to succeed, as they say a few times, ignorance is our ammunition. Indeed. (laughs) I thought that was just really fascinating because they are trying to unknow something or prevent knowledge from getting out back into the future, that algorithm that can invert the whole world. So, yeah, some of of the decisions from people during Oppenheimer's time, reading that book, almost make me want to do a a tenant with the future villains in bring the, the whole world. I, I can understand them now. Um, <laughs> but it, I have so many, I have the Kindle copy and there's so many notes where I'm just like, why? Like, yeah. Yeah. Like we definitely, just, uh, I think you need to get a little further in the book, but you, we definitely got our super villain for the Oppenheimer movie, but you'll know what I'm talking about. When we get there and we'll talk about it next week mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> as a, yeah. as a teaser, I get, as I tease again, settled history. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing on, on him, obviously the, the weapon of this movie was inspired by the radiation and nuclear reaction from the atomic bomb. But the, uh, I also didn't realize this, the original release date for this movie in July was one day after the date of the Trinity test at Los Alamos. Yeah. I've had to double check um, my, my brain a couple of times. I was like, wait a minute, are they releasing this movie with the test? But it's a, yeah, now five days after 
Yeah. And then the the quote that's most often attributed to Oppenheimer after the test was, now I am become death destroyer of worlds. And then the book, which I, I didn't realize is really fascinating, the actual a closer translation of that passage is closer to I am all powerful time, which destroys all things. Yes. Which is basically this movie. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought was, was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I noted that one too. And it definitely, when I read it the first time around in the Nolan variations, it, I was at the same time, shocked in a good way like oh yeah but at the same time thinking oh of course i should have known should have known right of course it's time it all comes back to time so <laughs> yeah and the only other thing i have on those two between dunkirk and oppenheimer this being that that connecting point uh definitely the notion of survival from dunkirk just <laughs> they're just trying to survive in tenet either whether it be at the future trying to uh attack the past and, and change things or the protagonist leading everybody trying to ensure the survival of the world as we know it. So very much uh, about saving people, living to fight another day, posterity, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Let me see what else did I have. Um, again, I love everything with, with Neil, especially watching it back now. Like you mentioned, the drink order thing and the, the those scenes where you on a first glance you're watching it and you're like oh he's just a spy and he's cocky so he's ordering for him and that's just how it goes mm -hmm. but then you realize like no he knows this person and is just really looking out for him especially in the the hallway fight scene where the mask comes off and he realizes that it's him but he can't tell him yeah because then that would screw it up in the future but the i really loved the quote that he said in the chapter on this and the Nolan variations where he said, if there is a love story in this movie, uh, talking about the, <clears throat> the story between the protagonist and cat, but he says, no, if there is a love story, it's between the protagonist and Neil, that's where it really is. Yeah. Um, and and the, the scene at the end, and I, just, I'd say oh. too, which I think you're about to, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This cowboy shit. Uh, <laughs> like <laughs> favorite line. I, there's, there's a few. Really I yeah. love that. <laughs> Yeah, and that was actually the bromance in this is really mm -hmm. what even the first time I saw this and before I even heard any of Nolan's comments about this was what stood out to me. It's it, Nolan calls it the emotional heart and that he didn't expect it. And so, yeah, you know, healthy male friendships. I like it. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was definitely more compelling to me, their relationship. And then, yeah, throwing Ives in there at the end with Aaron Taylor Johnson. Man, <laughs> what? What a another great uh, archetype they they put in here for from the genre uh, that he just pulls off brilliantly. Yeah, but Neil definitely one of my, if not my favorite supporting character from the Nolan Ouvroir. I think uh, I remember watching this the first time. I was texting you about it. I said I've just started tenant. You know, wish me luck. I'm like in 20 minutes. I was like, yeah, oh my god. He's like you, and you said just no, just keep going with it. And at the very end, I still remembered um, <laughs> texting you, Neil, in all caps and with uh, a lot of tears. So, um, <laughs> yeah, he just, uh, he's, he's great. And Robert Pattinson just pulls it off so well. 
And in addition to that, we mentioned this during the Heat episode. I said that uh, the protagonist and Neil and Ives kind of remind me of Neil McCauley's crew. So again, Neil with that brain worm. And it says, so it's mm, not about the romances between for the leads and Heat for Robert De Niro and yes. Al Pacino's characters. It's about, uh, for Robert De Niro, Neil McCauley, it's about his relationship with his crew. And for Al Pacino, it's about the work. So, mm-hmm. yeah, being able to bring that up again. Yeah. Uh, dudes rock, right? That's what you say. <laughs> dudes rock. This is a dudes rock movie for sure. Yeah. And I guess speaking of Kat, we, we need to talk about her because I, I did take some notes about, I think you said again, I'm going to, I'm just going to get people to read your letterbox review. That's what I'm trying. I'm just giving you crap. <laughs> you, you called this Nolan at his best and worst in one of your two letterbox reviews of this. Um, I still stand by that, even though I, I love it a lot more on this, yeah. this watch. This is pretty much him indulging everything that he does for better and for worse. Oh, and, and I agree, you know, some of the, the best with the visuals, the concepts and, you know, some of the cons, it's, it's so incredibly dense. It's the most dense plot he's ever concocted and you're just barely hanging on to keep up. But the thing with cat is in some ways he displays, I think some growth as a storyteller, at least countering some of the things that people can justifiably use as a stick to beat him with. As a storyteller, you know, we've got a protagonist of color for once. You know, otherwise, it's straight white dudes always in charge. Now we got John David Washington coming into the lead role. Now, mm-hmm. and Cat is, I know people, there was one recap I read of this the first time I watched it, and they just called her sad Elizabeth Debicki the whole time. <laughs> but you know what? She's not fridged here. There is no fridging. So let's give the man some credit for that. Instead, she's a female hero who kills the bad guy, kills the guy, uh, the the abusive husband. So you know what? Let's do that. At the same time, the relationship that she has with her kid, tries to make it work, but just doesn't come off for me. And I know that it's a... It seemed to be a source of derision, uh, skimming through the letterbox reviews. I mean, there's literally a line that she has when they say, you know, then the whole world ends, and then she just adds on that includes my son it's like yes yes it does um (laughs) but it's it's more that relationship is you know for that one for me yeah extremely left me extremely cold i didn't really feel that as much because it's really more it's it's a lot more tell and not really any show there's you know barely i think does her son have any lines at all and everyone's always just talking about him whether it's her or sator just it's you know, let the kid come into it and make us feel something, but you don't feel anything. But I think Elizabeth the Bicky does a does a fine job, again for better or worse. Yeah, they they let her be tall, which I appreciate. Yes. She, this woman is six foot three, and they do not film her in a way that makes her look shorter. So she towers good for them. over the protagonist. Yes, <laughs> over John David. Yeah, I love that bit. And too. They even, they like, even also another. <laughs> yeah, another like inversion of the Bond thing, right? Oh yeah. Um. Yeah, I get the the knocks on that because this she's not fridged and she does end up killing Sator at the end and taking matters into her own hands, especially once you realize that she saw herself jump off the boat. But yeah, it's just aside from that point, like she is a plot device for everything, but like 
I kind of excuse that here because like everyone is a plot device. Yeah. In this movie. But yeah, I think she definitely like from the get go, she she knows what's up. She sizes up the protagonist pretty well. There's that whole exchange where they have uh, dinner and she calls his bluff on who his contact was because she's like, oh, well, he wouldn't have talked to you because he can't speak, you know, stuff like that. Um, yeah, watching her slowly throughout the film, slowly figure out just the spy game stuff, kind of like uh, Cary Grant's Roger Thornhill does in North by Northwest because they're just an ordinary yeah. person starting out and they just figure out these things as they go along until you're just like, oh, OK, yeah, you're you're totally in on it. It's all good. Yeah. I'm also interested on how Oppenheimer is going to be received in this regard, because now that I've read the parts of the book that Florence, the woman that Florence Pugh is based on is, is in. Well, I was like, yep. really, bro? Like <laughs> he chose we can, a, a story where he can do a fridging and just say it's the history. <laughs> yep. Yep. And we can get more into that yeah. next episode. But I like I, my mouth, my jaw was on the floor when I got to that part. I was like, are you kidding? Um, I knew it was coming, but reading the details, <laughs> same thing. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but no, Kat is, I like her as a, as a Nolan protagonist as well. But yeah, still kind of indulging in the most like exposition y, uh, I exist to help the hero tendencies. But again, like I sure. said, like I I'll excuse that because like every character in this thing is a plot device and to some sort. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's it is kind of a, yeah, a Schrodinger's thing. It's 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 great. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes terrible at the same time. Um. I guess maybe I can ask the question I posed last episode of in context of North by Northwest, where I think it was Ernest Lehman said he wanted to write the Hitchcock picture to end all Hitchcock pictures. Is Tenet a Nolan picture to end all Nolan pictures up to this point anyway? What do you think? For the record, we have mentioned Tenet. I, I went back, I did a search through the, our transcripts. We have mentioned Tenet while discussing every other movie or at least in the lead up to everyone. Uh, and on the flip side, we've also pretty much done that with several others too, but Tenet has gotten regular mention and play throughout this. Mm -hmm. So what do you say? <laughs> I would say, yeah, because you've got so many elements of, of his previous films in here. Like Inception has a little bit of memento, a little bit of the showman stuff from prestige and then like the Dark Knight and Batman and the Dark Knight Rises trilogy all has some elements of other stuff sprinkled throughout it. But I think this is the only one that truly has elements of everything that he's done before in it. Like you mentioned earlier with just like that. It's such a long list of, of stuff that and callbacks. But I do agree with the quote from the book where he asks Jonah like am I repeating myself it doesn't feel like he's repeating himself it feels like he's riffing on himself I think a little bit where he's acknowledging what he did before but also kind of just playfully twisting it just a little bit and like and he knows it I think like this is the easily the most fun movie I think in his filmography since like Inception or Dark Knight yeah um, 
But yeah, I think this is, for better or worse, the most Nolan movie that exists up to this point. Yeah, I mean, I think so, too. I think it's a (laughs) a, Tom Schoen brought up the idea in the book, and it's it's pretty hard to disagree with that to me because, yeah, you got all this. So, yeah, it didn't turn out to be too much of a question, but it's uh, (laughs) pretty well deserved by unanimous decision. (laughs) We have our. uh, our, our Nolan-esque apotheosis. And I will say, too, on that, I don't know if he would ever work in television at all or if that's a thing that he even wants to do, but I would totally watch a TV show of the future-slash-past adventures of Neil and the protagonist just doing whatever they got to do to go back in time or go forward in time to stop stuff from happening. Oh, um, absolutely. I, I've even thought about that, too, because in, with Inception, there's a couple of, I think, a small comics that were that they released that were kind of prequels for the movie. And I was thinking, what if they did something like this for Tenet? Just expand the story a little bit. And that'd be kind of interesting. Yeah, because he doesn't really do. I mean, he did the Batman trilogy. But other than that, like no sequels. So just like just like no capes, no franchises. i think we haven't talked about the music yet which we definitely need to because this is his first collaboration with ludwig Göransson, who will be scoring oppenheimer Mm -hmm. and since hans zimmer decided to he wanted to work on dune lifelong project wish and he got it and paid off for hans zimmer he won the oscar for that score i believe but Ludwig Göransson steps in here. It's a great score. And yeah, absolutely nails it. Love this music. I love it so much. <laughs> the uh, the the guitar work on it. Um, some of the guitar mm-hmm. stuff. Um, while one also reminding me some of the the guitar riffs you get in Inception were very strong Leone vibes for me, especially when you can connect it with. Nolan's description of that final scene. They're you know saying it's very Leone on the blasted plane, these three guys. And then also I'd forgotten until I was reviewing some of the the highlights I made from the book. Nolan said, I'm trying to do for spy movies what Leone did for Westerns. And I recently came across something that was talking about like Clint Eastwood being in Leone's spaghetti westerns and that some of the contemporary reception of those at least was just that they were absolutely ridiculous and bad and just, uh, yeah, really stupid. And I'm thinking, Oh, well, you know, I think some people think that about Nolan's movies here today, but, uh, we look back on some of the spaghetti Westerns as being just a really great pastiche of the genre or, um, interpretation of it where it's just, if you've seen any of the Leone stuff and I'm thinking especially of the, the dollars trilogy, that it's just kind of a distilled essence of a Western to use the language we've been talking about with the stuff. Cause you've got your, again, an unnamed lead who just goes around doing his thing. And you've got these very tropey bad guys and you know, all the situations they end up in. It, it just all of a sudden I was like, wow, yeah, this, I think he, no one did do with spies what he did what leone did for westerns i think he succeeded with that so it all came from that seed that i heard in the music so just to go on off the uh (laughs) that rabbit path (laughs) 
yeah and i love the the beginning of the score too the it reminds me of uh dark knight with the orchestra tuning in tenant at the beginning yeah yeah with the 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 kind of like the low hum dissonant chord of dark knight yeah yeah and even with that like kind of meshing the sound and the music again kind of keeping that consistency with what we just had in dunkirk with that track and then like with the sador track where you hit the breathing is right in your ears and it's Mm -hmm. very discomforting with things like that for sure and then once the music even starts to play backward during all those oh man yeah have you listened to the inverted soundtrack they i mean they just play it backwards but it's available on youtube at least like officially officially i have because i have the the actual like i bought the actual score um, and so I have that, but I have not listened to the inverted one. I need to do that. That sounds interesting. Yeah, I did it a while back and it's, it's very fascinating and hearing the parts that play is backwards on the regular soundtrack, uh, just pretty cool getting to hear them all backwards there. But yeah, this is <laughs> listening to the music for this on the regular is like some very serious hype music for me, especially with the first track with rainy night and Tillin and windmills and posterity Uh, some of my personal favorites yeah just great great stuff i guess do we need to say anything else about the sound i think we got it all out at the at the top of the the whole thing i don't think we need yeah yeah watch this with some headphones or watch it with a good sound system and you should be okay i also had subtitles on so i got the full full monty but yeah do that and that it helps i i mean i don't know i even with all that i don't know like I said, I'll see you at the theater and I'll, I'll report back on it dutifully. But I don't know. There's only so much you can do with this one, in, in my opinion, based on my two viewings. We'll see how it goes for me in the future. But but definitely subtitles. Do that. That will help. <laughs> uh, I think I'm at the point where I just have stray thoughts and things. But the one thing I definitely want to get in is... I think my favorite line from the movie and perhaps one of my favorite pieces of dialogue in any Nolan film. And you can call this a circle jerk if you want. You can do the wanking motion with your hand. But you know what? I love this line. <laughs> I refuse to apologize for it. Uh, at the very end, when Neil's about to go off and the protagonist realizing that Neil's going off to die, to take literally take the bullet at the very end uh, to help him open the door to get through to the algorithm. Uh, Neil tells him what's happens happened, which is an expression of faith in the mechanics of the world, not an excuse to do nothing. And the protagonist says fate. And Neil says, call it what you want. What do you call it? Reality. So, ah, love it. And I just, I think the reason I love it so much is just the, the fact of, yeah, not an excuse to do nothing. Uh, Again, just as my own personal thing, I'm bringing up the stoicism a lot throughout this podcast and it's kind of the idea of things will happen that we can't control that they're happening, but that's not an excuse to just sit by and throw your hands up and say, oh, there's nothing I can do about it. Especially when to our current knowledge as as we are right now, we can, we only experience time in one direction. Like we have free will. So use it, <laughs> I guess, you know, it gets to the heart of a lot of philosophical debates about the nature of existence and everything. Right. But the, not an excuse to do nothing really resonated with me. Yeah. It all kind of comes back to the, the shared knowledge thing and like what we really do owe each other for all of this. And 
what we do with the knowledge that we have afterwards, you know, like, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't mean you just sit on it. You can't, you know, it's not an excuse to be apathetic or to, to just think the world is just going to end for no reason. Like you got to try, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the line itself ties in with the whole movie and the conversation they have earlier, Neil and the protagonist, when he was, asking him about the grandfather paradox, you know, um, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Neil says that, that those in power in the future clearly believe that you can kick grandpa down the stairs, gouge his eyes and slit his throat without consequence. And, you know, um, then the protagonist says it a little later, doesn't us being here now mean it never happens that we stop them. And Neil's like, yeah, you know, I'd say that's right, but maybe not. And the, <laughs> talking about like parallel worlds theory and yeah. the relationship between consciousness and multiple realities and asking the protagonist, does your head hurt yet? And yes, <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, both the protagonist and I definitely, but kind of to keep that conversation, keeping it open-ended is like, well, yeah, maybe we're, we are in a closed loop, but at the point, this point we're at the tip of it. So, you know, we just got to do what we got to do based on what we see. So that's all we can do. And Exactly. Yeah. Like that's kind of life too. We maybe everything has happened before and is happening again in the terms of the cycles of history, but all we can do is what we have control over and it's our own individual actions. Right. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that's it for me from, from things I definitely wanted to talk about. Maybe I'll skim over things and see if I have anything to just mention here little little stray bits but is there anything else you have jake uh no i think that's pretty much it for me i think we got everything that we covered yeah i think uh, stray observations i have here of looking over there's a couple of little uh cool no one hits to tie back into just thematic stuff there's satyr's line where he's talking to the protagonist right at the end they're having a conversation through the walkie-talkie and Sater's about to drop the algorithm and bury it. And the protagonist tells him, you don't believe in God or a new future or anything outside your own experience. And Sater replies, that's all any of us knows. The rest is belief and I don't have it. Just, um, wow. Like no one really telling us that, uh, the putting the subjective belief in an objective reality part, like literally right there, word for word. So that kind of caught my attention this time around. Oh, with the uh, the the conversation the protagonist has with Sir Michael again, like I really could feel that talking about the self awareness no one has in this, we can really feel it shining through that his British Americanism that he's got really came through in that with just the the back and forth they had, just the the prim and proper Brits that steward that the protagonist gives hell to, just you know, <laughs> really got me laughing and the line about the British not having a monopoly on snobbery instead and more of a controlling interest. You can like, you can almost hear him having a conversation with himself and also just a a patent example of this movie, just having lots of subtext just blasted into text. (laughs) Uh, But the genre, the spy genre generally isn't about subtlety really. So it's, again, that's another one of those things that it takes and just pops in there and puts right up to you one of the things you know and love about the spy genre. So I think I'll, I'll wrap up my commentary there. I'm not, I'm not going to keep going on and on like I have a tendency to do. 
I am too self-aware about that. Talking about that. <laughs> we can go to letterbox. We can do it. All right. Uh, you want me to go first? Uh, you know, you can. And if, if I change my mind, I can just invert it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. This is going to be the conclusion to a pretty lengthy review on Letterbox. This is from Jacob Knight, who um, he used to do some freelance stuff for Birth Movies Death, RIP. Uh, um, yeah. And he does some other stuff around the internet as well, but quality Letterbox follow if you want. But uh, the last paragraph of this review says, but the question still remains, is the battle to change the course of history a futile one? Maybe, maybe not. I saw Tenet in a theater, a choice I'm still not sure was right or not, despite the fact that I now also bartend 40 plus hours a week in order to make ends meet. However, one thing was clear, no matter how much our world is forever altered by this pandemic, we cannot let movies this unapologetically massive in scope perish along with movie theaters, should that be their ultimate fate. Tenet is undeniably the product of a visionary filmmaker working on the biggest stage and throwing his blockbuster weight around to get projects made that, auteur brand or not, would be a huge financial risk even in a fully functioning marketplace. Possibly a corny cliche to end on, but movies like Tenet are the reason I go to the movies, and I hope that Christopher Nolan's and Michael Mann's of the world continue to find unique avenues to get them made. Because even if you end up hating their almost defiant idiosyncrasies, these guys are going to make sure you feel something along the way damn and yeah the the whole review is great and it's just bangers like that one but yeah this is in a nutshell like the reason why i rented out a theater for this was like this is something that i wanted to experience in a theater and you just you can't nolan makes movies that are meant to be seen in the theater for it's it's a cliche at this point and it's like (laughs) a marketing grab but right it's true like he makes the type of movies that you want to see on a huge screen a good sound system, big bucket of popcorn and a real expensive drink and just let it wash over you. Oh man. I love that. That is what a fantastic find. Thanks for sharing that because that's, mm-hmm. I think that's how I feel about it too. Like a, a, that could be a thesis statement for this whole podcast too, in terms of the, uh, you know, if you hate their idiosyncrasies, at least they're going to you know go for broke and make sure you feel something. So, wow. Yeah. Great one. Great one. I have, two because I, I just like them so much that uh, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna do both because why not and uh, I'll read the end of the first one which is by Ellis at put in a spliff and they say of Tenet the arc the protagonist goes through from the beginning to the end of this film is being driven by this chaos to being able to surf the waves and be an architect of his own life rather than a passenger. It's a metaphor for taking responsibility over one's life. Things may seem fucked and impossible, but it's our position as humans to try and face the odds no matter what and stand up for what we believe in. And there's a really dumb action film built around that, which I really love. The peak of Nolan flexing his intellect while playing it as dumb and fun like he rarely <laughs> has in his career. So wrapping up a whole bunch of things that we just talked about, uh, the uh, the choice of, no, I'm not an excuse to do nothing, <laughs> wrapped up in there. And then the other review I picked out is by one of the members of the Letterbox crew, by Gemma G at GGNZ. And she wrote, I didn't try to understand it. I just felt it. It is big, loud, fun, classic cinema. What's bringing me movie joy lately? And this is in... August 2020 
is the fact that every idea has been done, every bad guy has been invented, every weird weapon dreamed up, every loop of time explored. And so the expository dialogue of all the new movies is, in hilariously obvious ways, the screenwriters letting us know they know this, and finding fun in tweaking the who, the what, and the how for another go-round. The why is always some kind of god complex, let's be honest. <laughs> and Seder definitely has one in this movie, so... Um, Again, yeah, like the winking at us, at the audience, I feel like for all the people who should unten it, you know, if you, if you don't like it, that's fine. There are plenty of, you know, there's plenty of movies for everybody to like and hate. But I really feel like Nolan knows what he's doing here and he knows he's just doubling down on some of the tropes of the genre. And they, you know, it's a good time for me. And so <laughs> that's that's where it is with me. And I'm really glad that it's just another one I can settle in and enjoy. Just let it wash over me. Yeah, like we said, that's the just the best way to watch this movie. Yeah, just don't don't think don't think too don't hard. think too hard. Not don't shut your brain off entirely. I would say yeah. I think like we've mentioned I, in the past, but you know, give it a little thought, but don't you know, let him not pay for the cab, not be seen paying for it. Hmm. Oh, but there we've we're we're up to the present now. We've we have inverted our way and come back through time, whatever. We're here at the present. It's it's almost time for Oppenheimer. We're, we're, we're there. I know it's been been a long time coming, and it's just, I can't believe it's almost It's here. been nearly a year since we uh, we cooked up this idea. So, yeah. And yeah, we're going to get to that next week. So until then, though, where can people find us, Jake? Uh, you can find us at friends at dusk pod on Instagram. Uh, and as of today on threads, if you want to check us out over there and at friends at dusk on Twitter, uh, you can also email us at friends at dusk pod at gmail.com for any thoughts, questions, concerns. Uh, and where can they find you, Marshall? I am on Instagram at marshall.doig. Haven't seized my threads handle yet but it's only a matter of time because on twitter however long that <laughs> continues to last or be even mm. accessible i am at marshall doig and on letterboxd at m doig nice and i'm over at letterboxd at 808 jake underscore and you can find me on instagram and twitter both at jake harris four please remember to like and subscribe leave us a five-star rating uh, on apple podcasts to get the Get those numbers up and then you can also support us through our spotify podcast page that we will link in the show notes and you can also find our list of resources for everything as well in the show notes and all the links that we've talked about tonight and we did it next time we are going to be discussing the source material for oppenheimer yeah we'll see if we can stumble upon any influences since we gotta we're, we're on our own now <laughs> <laughs> we have no book to guide us. We've got to do it ourselves now. Oh man, the crutch um, is gone. It's a, it's a rich, rich text. I think we're gonna be, be all right. Yes, there's plenty to talk about. We're we're <laughs> gonna be all right. We're gonna be good. Until then, that'll do it for us. We'll see you next time here on Friends at Dusk. Thank you as always for listening. Bye.
We live in a twilight world. We live in a twilight world. And there are no friends at dusk.